Morning, Flatirons. How are we? Good job springing forward, everybody. Well done. Well, how many of you think you're at the nine o'clock? All right, just, just check in. Hey, confession to make as we're in this uh, intersect, intersection series that we kicked off last week. I'm an easily distracted driver. Anybody else with me? Easily distracted, all right? I once actually rear-ended somebody because I was reading a magazine while I was driving, all right? Did that in high school, probably because I grew up watching my dad read the newspaper while he was driving. That's where I got that from. But also, when I come to a stoplight, when I come to an intersection, I see that as time that I can spend well. And so I'll check text messages and emails and voicemails, maybe get in a little angry birds for the day or something like that. And and some of you are just like me because I see you doing the exact same thing. Others of you, there's kind of two groups of people. There's people like me. And then there's those of you who, when you're sitting at an intersection, you're like this and you're focused right on that light because you are ready to go the second that light turns green. And the worst case scenario for you is when I'm in front of you right? And, and I know this because I've been sitting at intersections many times in my life. And the second the light turns green, if I don't just mash on the gas, there's people like you that are just laying on the horn behind me as if you were in a NASCAR race. All right. If that's you, I'm here today to tell you to settle down. Okay. And just so you know, all that provokes in people like me is the desire to sit there for about a five count until you catch the red light as I go through on yellow. All right. That's, that's the way I roll. Okay. Now all that to say, eventually when you're sitting at an intersection, you got to go, you got to move along. You got to, you got to proceed. Sitting there is not an option. And we're in this series called intersection where we're looking at moments along the way in different people's journeys, specifically in the book of John, where people interact with Jesus and Jesus compels people to move. Jesus compels people to have to deal with his words and his commands. And ultimately you have to kind of deal with Jesus himself. And I love that because you'll never find, if this is one of your first times here, you just need to hear me say, and I think you'll find this out on your own, but you need to know, you'll never find a more safe place to process what you believe about Jesus than this place. We say around here all the time that this is a place where you can belong before you believe. In other words, you can keep coming, you can keep asking questions, you can keep processing, you can keep being skeptical, all those things. And even if you never believe, we're not gonna like revoke your parking privileges, we're not gonna make you start paying for the coffee, we're not gonna do any of that. That's between you and Jesus. This is a safe place for you to figure out what you believe to be true about Jesus. So with all that said, all we wanna do around here, just so you know, is we wanna get out of the way. That's one of our objectives. Let's get out of the way, let Jesus speak for himself, and then people can deal with what Jesus says. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of us who've been around here for a while. We've been followers of Jesus for a while. And isn't this true of us? We so easily forget the kind of faith that Jesus wants to build into us. And we so easily forget the things that Jesus has commanded us to and called us to. And we so easily settle for a much more mundane and boring faith than what Jesus actually calls us to. And so today and throughout this series, we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to watch as he intersects with people in their lives and we're going to watch as he forces people in a direction to make a choice. And if if you've got your Bibles today, go ahead and pull those out. Turn them to the book of John chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible, pull out your program. The the verses will be in there. They'll also be on the screens. And we're going to pick it up in John chapter 4 verse 43. Now, one of the things I love about this series is we're actually going to be walking through uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible, probably top two favorite books in the Bible. Book of John, book of Romans. I love them both. The book of John reveals the heart of Jesus, I think, in a in a way that no other book of the Bible does. It just gives us a real interesting perspective into Jesus's 
heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this series. If you remember last week in John chapter 3, Jim walked us through this story where Jesus met this guy named Nicodemus in Jerusalem at kind of an intersection in his life. And while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he created quite a stir. He really rattled some cages. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that here in a few moments. But we're going to fast forward a little bit. And from that moment where he was down in Jerusalem in Judea, he travels north to a place called Samaria. And you've heard Jim and I teach on this before if you've been around for a while, but he meets this woman by a well in Samaria, an intersection in her life, and he totally transforms her life. And consequently, not just her life, but the lives of everybody in her town are transformed because of meeting Jesus at this intersection. So we're gonna pick up right after that story where Jesus met the woman at the well. John chapter four, verse 43, look at this. After the two days that he spent in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. All right, so we're going to do a little geography, all right? I was terrible in geography growing up. Thank God for Google Maps, all right? So here we go. Um, Jesus, when he had that interaction with, with Nicodemus, was down south here in Judea. He travels north up to Samaria. That's in Sychar. He has this interaction with the woman at the well. And then he travels north further up into this region called Galilee because that lake up there is called the Sea of Galilee, all right? We're gonna talk about two towns in the story today. One is Capernaum up there right on the shore and then this other little town called Cana down to the southwest. And so Jesus has traveled from Samaria up to Galilee. And there's this kind of little editorial remark that Jesus had made a point of saying, listen, a prophet's not respected in his hometown. And people aren't really sure if he was talking about down south where he was leaving or up north where he was going. But ultimately when you get crucified, you're not really well respected anywhere. All right. So look at verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. So, so the Galileans, this is on the heels of Jesus's time down in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which was the most famous and well-attended feast in the Jewish calendar year. It was a time where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And it was a really, really big deal. And so all the people in the region of Galilee had also traveled down to Jerusalem when Jesus was there. And that's where he interacted with Nicodemus and things like that. Now, the thing that kind of made Jesus famous while he was down there was this interaction he had when he went to the temple. And Jesus often on his first day in Jerusalem would go to the temple first thing. And so when he goes to the temple on this day, what he sees infuriates him. What he sees is a bunch of money changers and money lenders in the temple courts who are exchanging foreign currency because people are flocking in from all kinds of neighboring countries and they're selling people animals so they can make their sacrifices because often people didn't want to travel with their animals to make their sacrifices, which means that these money changers and money lenders and these these people selling animals in the temple courts have a monopoly. So what can they do? They can cheat people, right? And they can price gouge. They can do whatever they want. And so what Jesus sees is people getting between God and people who want to worship him. And Jesus doesn't take kindly to that. And so what Jesus does is he, he steps out of the temple for a bit. He actually makes a whip out of cords, which I think is awesome, all right? He comes back into the temple courts with a whip. Like nobody ever painted this picture. Like when I grew up seeing paintings of Jesus, he always looked frankly like a girl, all right? Nobody ever painted a picture of Jesus with a whip in the temple courts, turning over tables in the temple and throwing people out. Nobody ever painted that picture, but that's what Jesus did. 
So it creates quite a stir. And so when Jesus travels north up to Galilee, all the Galileans welcome him. They're like, man, this is the guy who went nuts in the temple courts. I wonder what he's going to do when he comes up here. Let's see what happens. That's what's going on. Now, look at this in verse, uh, verse 46, the first little part here. Once more he visited Cana, that's that little town, in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. All right, so this is Jesus' second time in this town called Cana, and the last time he was there, he did his very first miracle, which is a very cool miracle. He changes water into wine, and you can read back in John chapter 2 all about this if you want, but he's at this wedding banquet, and Jewish wedding banquets go on for forever. They're like these huge epic parties, and so when you run out of wine, it's kind of a shameful thing in that culture, and so when they run out of wine, and a lot of people think it may have been the disciple John's wedding, that's how he has such intimate knowledge of all this, when they run out of wine, Jesus' mom, Mary, comes to Jesus and is like, Jesus, you got to do something about this. They ran out of wine. And so she calls over some servants, and Jesus tells the servants, he doesn't do any smoke and mirrors. There's no David Copperfield act. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. There's no dramatic music. He just calls the servants over. He's like, grab these jars over here, fill them up with water, and when you do, take it to the master of the banquet, the, the MC, if you will. Let him taste it. And they're like, okay, whatever. So they fill it up with water, then they take it to the MC. He, dr- he drinks some of it and it's water that's been changed into wine. He doesn't know that. The servants are now like, whoa, right? And so he tastes it and he calls over, not Jesus, because he doesn't know anything about Jesus. He calls over the groom, right? So he goes, bro, and that's in the Greek, I promise. Bro, <laughs> This is great. Most people break out the good wine at the beginning of the party, and then once everybody's well lit, they break out the Boone's Farm and the box wine, all right? That's just true, right? You, however, are to be commended because you've done exactly the opposite. And the groom's like, yeah, I know. How did that happen? You know? It's a very, very good moment. And so don't miss it. In that moment, Jesus gets no credit for what he did, but there's only these astonished servants and his mom that know what happened, but it doesn't take long for word to spread. Hey, you need to invite Jesus to your party, (laughs) right? Right? He's like the guy in high school who had the fake ID. He gets invited to every, every party. All right. I wouldn't know anything about that. All right. Now, Look at the second part of verse 46. And there was a certain, this is back to our story in Cana the second time around. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. All right, so Capernaum, they'll throw the map back up there, north side, northwest side. He's up there, he's a royal official. And when it says royal official, it means probably a couple of things we can assume here. One is this guy's probably a Gentile, meaning he's not a Jewish person. And on top of that, he works for a guy named Herod Antipas, who was kind of a puppet ruler in this region, who was in the pocket of Rome, and he was oppressing Jewish people for his own benefit. So this guy who works for him is probably hated as well. Also, it probably means that he has some resources available to him. He's got a son who's sick, which means he's probably able to bring the best doctors in the region to him. He's probably exhausted all his financial wherewithal trying to get his son better. He's used his power and his influence in that way. And now he's going to make a 20-mile journey from Capernaum down to Cana to see Jesus. Look at this in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So he catches wind. He's like, oh, 
That guy, Jesus, the one who was rumored to have done that really cool trick at the party at the wedding in, in Cana, he's back in town and he's tried everything, this guy. His son's been sick. He's tried everything. In his mind, he's going, well, maybe this guy can do something for my son. And it's safe to say, I think, that this guy has no interest in Jesus in other, other than what Jesus can do for him and do for his son. Now, the interesting thing is this, as I was kind of studying this week, I was reading some different commentaries on this story and things like that, and I got really frustrated, which happens all the time. I was, I was reading these commentators, and every one of them criticized this man for that attitude. I kind of close up the commentary and sit back and scratch my head and just go, were none of you theologians' parents as well? Like, can, can none of you, like, put, your, put yourself in his shoes? Like, which one of us as parents have, never been in, have ever been in that place where we go, man, I would do anything for my kid. Do anything. Of course that's what he's interested in. His son is laying sick and dying. Of course that's what he's interested in. Why would you criticize him for that? How many of us, we've been in a place in our life where we were so disp- desperate, we were willing to try anything? How many of us? See, those are the stories I hear all the time around here. I hear people all the time who walk through these doors and, and listen, they're not sure what they think about, about Jesus. They've just heard that maybe he can help with, and you can fill in the blank, maybe he can help with my marriage, addiction, health, poverty, depression, loneliness, anger. Again, fill in the blank. I meet people week after week, hour after hour, who walk into this place who've tried everything from drugs to sex to religion, and now they're giving Jesus a shot, right? See, desperation drives lots of people to Jesus. That's just reality, And what could be more desperate than this guy's situation? Every parent in the room would agree, man, you can do whatever you want to me, just don't don't touch my kid. And so here's this man, he's tried everything and now he's gonna try one more thing. Press pause and, and think about this for a second. Imagine that moment, he's been by his son's bedside for maybe weeks. He's watched as he's gotten worse and worse and worse and finally he decides, I'm gonna make that journey, I'm gonna travel down to Cana and he knows that the second he walks out that door, he might not ever see his son alive again. And he takes a mental picture as he walks out the door and with tear-filled eyes, he leaves and he does exactly what you and I would do. He gets there as quickly as possible, finds Jesus as quickly as possible and begs, begs Jesus to heal his son. Now look at how Jesus responds. It's kind of shocking in verse 48. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Doesn't that sound harsh? Doesn't that sound kind of mean? I think it does. Here's, here's the deal, all right? Jesus is obviously not just talking to this man. He says, you people, the same phrase he used last week when he was talking to Nicodemus. I think it's safe to say from the moment that Jesus arrived in, in the neighborhood in Galilee and Cana in that area, he probably had people just flocking to him going, man, do that trick again. Man, come on, show us something cool, Jesus. Jesus, do some more cool stuff. And Jesus understands that it's so easy for people to get distracted by his miracles and miss the significance of who he is. It happened all the time. For example, he fed 5,000 people miraculously one time and everybody showed up the next day, not because they were interested in Jesus, but because they were hoping for another free lunch. Jesus knows. He's like, man, you guys, it's so easy for you to get distracted from the fact that you're dealing with God in the flesh and all you want me to do is do all these miracles. So Jesus is speaking not just to this man, but to this crowd. But I got to be honest with you. I love the way the man responds in this moment. I think it's awesome. Look at this in verse 49. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, stay with me here, Jesus. Let's focus here, all right? I'm not interested in believing in you. I'm not interested in following you. That's not even on my radar right now. I'm not interested in whatever you're selling. I'm not buying. All I'm interested in is you coming with me because this is the only thing I've got left. 
So stop with the speeches and let's go. How many of you go, yeah, I'd be the exact same way. That's how I'd be. Now look how Jesus responds. Verse 50, the first part. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. No smoke and mirrors, no magic tricks, no hocus pocus, no incantation to say back to him, no religious hoops to jump through. Jesus doesn't demand a commitment out of this guy. He doesn't make him sign on the dotted line. He doesn't make him pledge allegiance, say the sinner's prayer. None of that. He doesn't even offer to go with the man. You may go, your son will live. And where does that put this man? You know where it puts him? At an intersection. Now he's got a choice to make, doesn't he? Now he has to choose. I mean, think about the tension of that moment. This man's going, oh, what? Now what do I do? Do I, do I believe this guy, Jesus, who I just met? Do I take him at his word? Do I walk back? Or do I stand here and demand more? Do I move on to something or someone else? Do I, do I demand that he come with me? Do I, do I ask or demand for more proof, more evidence that I should base my, my belief, my, tr- my faith, my trust on? But the reality is he can't just sit there. He now has to make a decision. He's at an intersection. Does he A, insist on evidence, or B, exercise faith without tangible proof? You ever been there? With the question, do I do what Jesus tells me to do, even though from where I'm standing, I can't see how in the world this is going to play out? I can't see how in the world this is going to turn out. Do I trust and obey Jesus, even though it doesn't make any sense for me to do what Jesus is telling me to do? Or do I keep on questioning, keep on demanding? Do I trust Jesus, the person, or do I only trust what my eyes can see and my hands can touch? Do I let go... Or do I hang on to the reins? Do I let Jesus steer my life or do I have to control everything? And here's this man standing at this intersection, eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, who he's never had any desire to believe in, follow, or trust. And now he has to decide, do I believe in, do I follow, and do I trust this man, Jesus? Feel the tension of that moment. I know you can feel it because you've been in that same moment. Do I trust Jesus with my marriage? Do I trust what he says? Do I trust Jesus with my kids? Do I trust God with my circumstances? Do I trust Jesus with my finances? Do I trust him with my sexuality enough to actually put one foot in front of the other and obey what he tells me to do? And can my, I just, let me be the first to say, I'll step across this line and go, often for me, and I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, the answer is simply no. No, I, I don't. A lot of times that's my response. Jesus, I need more proof. I need the solution in front of me before I'll obey. I need you to show me how this is gonna turn out before I'll put one foot in front of the other. I know what you're saying. I hear what you're telling me to do. But under these conditions, the answer, Jesus, is simply no. For me, a lot of times it's in the form of of forgiving other people. I'm not a naturally forgiving person. Not many people are. So when it comes to some of the the horrible, evil, sinful things that some people have done to me in my life, the notion most days of forgiving them is something I'm not really interested in or eager to do. And so the prayer is a very short one. It goes like this, dear Jesus, no, in your name I pray, amen, right? You've prayed the exact same prayer. So please understand, I know what it feels like to stand at this intersection and give that response, and, and I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, this guy that we're talking about in this story isn't a follower of Jesus, He's not. So let's see what he does in this moment, in this tension. Look at the second half of verse 50. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Wow. It's a real short sentence, but there's a whole lot there, isn't it? He took 
Jesus at his word and departed. He took Jesus at his word, put one foot in front of the other, and began that 20-mile journey back to Capernaum. Now look at how it plays out, verse 51. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. That's about 1 p.m. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. So this man's confronted with some servants on the way home and they go, your son is alive. He's well, he's fine. And he goes, what? And they go, yeah, about about one o'clock yesterday, all of a sudden he just got better. And he's like, one o'clock, that's the exact same time I was talking to Jesus yesterday. And something happens in this man. Something is stirred up, something is awakened and it's the word belief, which literally is translated faith. He has faith. And the way that that's defined is simply this. If you've been here for a while, you know this. Faith is believing God is who he says he is. Will do everything he's ever promised to do. And then living your life based on that belief. That's, that's faith. And this man's whole life is changed at that intersection when faith is born in him. He was headed one direction, not interested in the least in Jesus. Then he meets Jesus at the most significant intersection of his life and everything changes his life is forever different him and his whole household believe because listen when he left town the rest of the family gathered around this boy's bed I'm sure and they watched as his breathing got more shallow and more shallow and they watched as the fever just ravaged his body and they watched as that happened and they knew that it would only be a miracle that could cause this boy to live again and then it happens and then he comes home and he goes yeah it was Jesus who did it and they put their faith in him as well So here's the question for all of us today. As we continue to journey through this series in our own intersections, in our own life, the question's simply this. Are you going to take Jesus at his word or not? Are you going to take Jesus at his word or not? Because Jesus says some really outrageous things, not just to that royal official, but to us. And please don't miss the point of this sermon. Please don't mistake this for some shallow health, wealth, and prosperity sermon that says if you just have enough faith, then all of a sudden you'll never get sick again and you'll always have enough money in the bank account and your teeth will always be white. That's not in the Bible. That's not this church. And I'm not that guy. All right? Just so you know. Jesus promised this guy, his son would get well. He didn't promise me my son would. He didn't promise you your son would. See, here's the thing about Jesus' miracles. He fed thousands of people a couple of times and every now and then he raised someone from the dead and he healed a lot of, a handful of sick people and lame people and things like that. But here's the truth, here's the reality. Every person Jesus ever healed, including the little boy in this story, eventually got sick and died, Right? Every person Jesus ever miraculously fed got hungry a few hours later. Every person Jesus ever rose back to life got sick and died again. Even the good wine ran out at the party at some point, right? So here's the question we have to boil this down to. Are we going to continue to live in that place where we simply view Jesus as the fixer of our problems, the ticket to treasure, the guy who does really cool tricks, Or do we move beyond seeing Jesus for how he just fixes temporary things to seeing Jesus for how he can take care of eternal things? And the question becomes, will we trust him enough that no matter what happens with the temporary things, that he'll take care of the eternal things? See, I think that's why Jesus never made a big spectacle out of his his miracles. Because he knew that it would be so easy for people to be distracted by those miracles and miss the significance of who he is because they're so enraptured by what he can do. 
See, listen to me. Jesus may miraculously set you free from your addiction and you never want that thing again. And he may not. He may save your marriage and she may walk out this afternoon. He may get you a great job and you may be unemployed for a while longer. Does Jesus care about those things? Absolutely. Are those his ultimate concern? Absolutely not. His ultimate concern has a lot more to do with your heart and how it relates to his. Do you have faith in him? Will you follow him? Whether you struggle every day with your battle and your addiction or not, whether you have to bury someone in the ground or not, whether your marriage gets better or not, whether she walks out on you or not, that's why Jesus always said this phrase, I am. Over and over again, he's trying to draw people back to him. He's trying to center our focus on who he is. And he said outrageous things like this, like, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. It's an outrageous statement. He's saying basically this, I'm all you need to sustain you in this life. Nothing more and nothing less. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? He says things like this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, will you have the courage to step out of darkness into the light like Jim talked about last week and let your eyes adjust as painful and as harsh as that is? Will you not retreat back to the darkness, but will you stand in the light and trust that Jesus will lead you to a better place, a better place of life? Or when he says this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am Do you understand when he says that he's invoking one of the names of God that God revealed to Moses generations before and that Jesus is in fact saying I'm eternal and I'm God. That is a bold brazen statement. What about this when he says I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't that sound so exclusive and politically incorrect and intolerant? It does unless it's true. Then all of a sudden, it's the most loving thing Jesus could ever say. Like, what do you think Jesus' motivation was when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you think he was trying to stick it to other world religions? Do you think he even had on his mind what would be politically incorrect or how people would perceive it as intolerant? No, you know what it actually says? The, the, The heading in my Bible above these verses says, Jesus comforts his disciples. And that's exactly what he's trying to do with those words. In effect, what he's saying is, listen, don't go off chasing, trying to find your significance and your pleasure and your joy and your peace and your comfort and your satisfaction and your salvation in anyone or anything but me. Because if you do, you're going to turn up exhausted and empty. If you'll turn to me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, that's a beautiful, loving statement when you understand his heartbeat. What about when he says this? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's Jesus going, man, listen, all your attempts at being like a better person, better dad, better husband, better wife, better boss, better employee, better student, better kid, whatever that is for you, whatever you're trying to do, that's called cart before the horse. If you don't first concern yourself with, am I connected to God through Jesus? Not my words, Jesus' words. Now you get to wrestle with them, but that's what he said. We could go on all day talking about the outrageous statements and claims that Jesus made and that he still makes today. This just barely scratches the surface of some of the things that he said. But the question I want you to ask is simply this. Are you willing to take Jesus at his word today? 
Tomorrow has enough to worry about on its own. I'm not talking about tomorrow, today. Today, are you willing to put one foot in front of the other and trust him? See, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. The only way I'm capable of trusting Jesus with the temporary things in my life, my marriage, my job, my finances, my friendships, is because I trust him with the most important thing in my life. That's the eternal things. See, it all goes back to that verse that that Jim directed our hearts and thoughts to last week. Most famous verse probably in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Recently, we got this anonymous letter from somebody. Those are my favorite kind to get. And um, had this picture on it that, that this person had taken. And it was of uh, John 3.16 that had been like graffitied on, on something here in town. And underneath it, it said, I don't think Tebow or Jesus would approve of using vandalism for evangelism. I'm like, what does Tebow have to do with this? But anyway, <laughs> I think the assumption being made is we're the big church in town. So it must have been one of you guys that did it, all right, and I wanted, if it was an anonymous person, I would have written back and said, I'm sure that our people do graffiti, it's probably not John 3, 16 though, just so you know, but to be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of when I see that, and somebody really has gone haywire here in town, John 3, 16 is everywhere, and I, I'm not a big fan, not for the same reason that person wasn't a big fan, I'm not a big fan because I think when we see somebody holding up a sign at a ball game, when we see it on a bridge or whatever, it makes us numb to what it actually says, like, like, do you know what it actually says? Like, I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't know what John 3.16 says. And I know that's not everybody's story, but this past week in, in my office, I'm, I'm thinking about John 3.16, and when I think about it, really meditate on it, it's, it's mind-blowing. It, it makes my knees buckle. Like, do you understand how profound it is at every level? God. There is a God. There's an all-sustaining, all-knowing, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, God so loved the world? Doesn't even make sense. Look at us. Look at what we do to each other. Look at how we mess things up. We can't even live up to our own standards, much less God's standards. Yet God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And let's take that word gave and explain what that actually means. He handed his one and only son over to evil and sinful people and we did what evil and sinful people do. We killed him. And I've said it before, I got two boys. I wouldn't give either one of them for you on your best day. God gave his one and only son for me and for you on our worst day. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. It didn't say whoever's cleaned up their lives. It didn't say worthy people. It didn't say church people, smart people, rich people, poor people. It said whoever. And it doesn't say whoever goes to church the most, whoever obeys all the rules, or whoever has the most money, or whoever helps little old ladies across the street, or whoever goes to confession the most in their life. It says whoever believes, whoever takes Jesus at his word, whoever believes that God gave his one and only son for you, So that you wouldn't have to suffer the eternal consequences of your actions and my actions. But that you would have life and life that would never run out, spoil or fade. But real life. You see, God has nothing left to prove to you. God has nothing left to prove to me. He proved everything when he sent his son to the cross. If you want to know how much God loves you, look 
to the cross, the only question that remains is simply this. Will you take Jesus at his word? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. A lot of us, I'm sure, quite desperate. Quite desperate, just like that man who came running 20 miles to meet you, begging and pleading for you to to heal his son. And Father, some of our, our needs are relational. Some of our needs are physical. But God, may we not get blinded by those things and miss our most significant need, which is spiritual. God, we wanna see you for who you really are and we're asking, would you reveal that to us today? Would you meet us at our own intersection just like you met that man at his intersection on that day, just like you did repeatedly all throughout scripture? God, would you give us the confidence and the strength to take you at your word and would you create in us this thing that we can't create in ourselves called faith? Would you draw our hearts to yours? And would you help us to see past the temporary and see the eternal and see you for who you are? We love you so much. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Let's all stand.